At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. We'll be reading the entire psalm. Let's give careful attention now to the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. To the chief musician, set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter. Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, picking up in verse 4. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. We find in this psalm many relevant teachings that are extremely important for us in our own day. 
And as those living in an age where there is great decline, there are many things in this psalm that come as a great encouragement to us. We live in an age of moral decline, an age of spiritual decline, and an age of theological decline. Not just outside the church, but inside the church. Uh, We no longer have Solomon's golden shields, but we have uh, the shields of bronze that are made to replace them. Things have been downgraded. There's been great decline ethically, spiritually, theologically, inside and outside the church. And so we come to a, a, a psalm like this and we're encouraged by that because we see King Jesus riding forth prosperously, that is, vigorously. He's on the warpath. He's boldly and triumphantly riding forth, and He's riding forth for truth and for righteousness. And we're told here, in fact, this statement is put upon our lips where we're urging Him, verse 3, gird your sword upon your thigh. Uh, Gird up your loins, arm yourself, uh, put the bullets in the chamber as it were, Uh, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And so we have this sovereign King Jesus on the horse, riding prosperously with the sword upon his thigh. He is the mighty one, indeed the almighty one. El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Gabor, the divine warrior, the mighty God, as he's actually referred to later on. Your throne, O God, verse 6. He's the divine warrior riding forth for truth and righteousness. His right hand, a symbol of his strength and power as far as the Hebrew idiom is concerned. Your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So in a day in which truth and righteousness are on the decline, we can sing in faith of Jesus Christ riding forth for the truth of God's Word. What God has revealed to us concerning Himself, concerning His plan, concerning His law and His gospel, the biblical worldview, all of these things, he rides forth mightily and sovereignly to defend these things, to promote these things, uh, what man is to believe concerning God, and what duty God requires of man, as our catechism says. He rides forth for righteousness and for justice, and he defeats his enemies. And as we sang in Psalm 21, if you incorporate that into the picture, you see that His arrows of judgment are flying in the face of those who would oppose His agenda of truth, of righteousness, and of justice in every area of life. So, as those living in an age of moral, spiritual, and theological decline, verse 4 comes as a great encouragement. Here comes Jesus, and He's on a mission, and He will not be denied. But, as those living in an age of increased polarization and rhetorical ferocity in the public dialogue, verse 4 may perhaps come as something of a countercultural shock, if not an outright rebuke. Why do I say that? Well, 
Jesus is not merely riding forth for truth and righteousness. He's riding forth for humility. Or as the King James translates, meekness. He's riding forth for truth, meekness, and righteousness. And in a sense, it's proper for the psalmist to put meekness in the middle because it's the heart of his cause. Because he's meek and lowly of heart. As we saw last night. But this comes as something that's countercultural. Now, you say countercultural, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is, uh, in our circles as Christians, as Reformed Christians, uh, many of us having uh, conservative leaning views on various cultural issues and social issues, for us, it's actually part of our culture to be countercultural. It's part of our culture to be countercultural. So when I say countercultural, I guess what I'm really saying is it's counter to so much that is involved in the present countercultural movement. People that are opposed to truth and righteousness have dominated our culture in many ways, and so those of us that are opposed to that wicked agenda have developed a counterculture against it within the church, religiously, theologically, spiritually, morally, ethically politically, this, this hodgepodge, this fascinating phenomenon of countercultural Christianity. And I'm saying what Jesus says here is counter to so much of the counterculture that we've developed over against the wicked culture in which we live. At the heart of this agenda, this mission of the Lord is humility, meekness, could be translated mildness, mildness, patience, gentleness, which is a fruit of the Spirit, lowliness. All of these words factor in, uh, but the chief word we're going to be using here is the King James translation, meekness, which I think is used by our psalm book. So uh, it's, it's by no means a fringe translation. Meekness. Uh, This is so important. We live in polarizing times and there is little meekness in our society. There is little mildness, patience, gentleness in our society. Whether it be the right side of the aisle or the left side of the aisle, whether it be the culture or the counterculture, there's very little meekness. We live in a society that on the right and on the left, people have abandoned meekness. And so we're tempted to be conformed to the pattern of this world, to fight fire with fire, rather than, as they say on the Andy Griffith show, Barney Fife. Uh, Well, he said to fight fire with fire, but Andy Griffith reminded him that, no, you fight fire with a hose. You fight fire with water. But we're we're drawn into this firefight where meekness has been tossed into the corner as irrelevant, if not ungodly in some circles. And we have horrendous role models on the internet and in the political forums of our day. Horrendous role models. The people that many Christians are expecting at a human political level to rise up and make a difference are people that have no interest in the meekness that Jesus Christ rides forth to promote. We live in a day in which there are many problems, but most of the solutions are extreme on either side of the aisle extreme solutions. Uh, And here we're told that King Jesus, like King David, is opposed to that. He's opposed to that. Just like 
David found himself in 2 Samuel 16, 9, and 10. In fact, multiple times in that chapter uh, saying, Oh, you sons of Zeruiah. Just lamenting Joab and his brothers and how they lacked meekness in promoting David's reign. He said, that's not my agenda. And I think Jesus is saying the same thing here as He said to His disciples who wanted to call down fire to destroy a town in Samaria because they were inhospitable. Jesus said, do you even know what spirit has overtaken you? You know not what spirit you are of. O you sons of Zeruiah. Jesus, like David, rides forth for meekness. We live in an age of impersonal modes of communication that allow us to be far more liberated in making uncharitable statements over the internet through text messaging and social media and various internet forums where we're not inhibited the way we normally would be restrained simply by the image of God in other people as we're interacting face-to-face. We see, we perceive by the light of nature, if not the light of the Gospel, the image of God in other people, and we speak in a more restrained way, but not so the keyboard controversialist on the internet where his carnal zeal or her carnal zeal is uninhibited. Uh, in ways that it would have been restrained in other forms of speech. And there are extreme views of meekness in the church. Uh, You have self-styled moderates who promote a sort of gentle olatry where gentleness becomes the be-all, end-all of all the spiritual virtues, it seems. And then you have people, self-styled conservatives on the other side, where you get the sense that there's been some sort of procedure that's taken place, perhaps a gentle ectomy, where we've just removed gentleness and meekness from the equation altogether. And there's been an influx in the church, thankfully in some sense, of young conservative men who have been disillusioned with the way the culture has rejected them and and put forth all kinds of insanity. And so people are drawn to consider Christianity and more and more robust forms of Christianity. And so we have an influx. We've seen it in our church. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful trend. An influx of young conservative-minded men. Uh, It's a good thing if that is properly harnessed. But so often it's been hijacked by people like Doug Wilson and other so-called reformed figureheads who really seem to be more more so conformed to someone like a Donald Trump than anybody else. And so young, zealous, reformed men are brought in and the vacuum of discipleship is filled with people who are leading them to lesser and lesser manifestations of meekness and gentleness in accordance with the heart of the Savior. And there have been warning flares that have been shot up uh, by reputable confessional churchmen in various denominations. People I've spoken to uh, across the board that are, are by no means unwilling to speak about truth and righteousness. These are people we look up to, and yet they're concerned, I'm concerned, that this trend is on the rise. Uh, Let me give you two examples of uh, some of the things that are happening on the internet, on social media. I'm not on there, but some people that are bring things to my attention from time to time, various pastors and churchmen. Uh, One example 
is that uh, there was, uh, this is what I was told by a, a reputable minister who's very conservative and confessional, um, that there was a debate over whether you should use wine only, common cup only in the Lord's Supper. And whatever you may think of that, I'm not commenting on that debate one way or the other, but there was a question as to whether an exception should be made for someone who has an allergy or someone who had been an alcoholic or there was some type of issue where, you know, could we be flexible with the wine only restriction? And the response was that it was more important to avoid blaspheming God by making that exception. Now, it's one thing to say you hold wine only, common cup only. It's another thing to invoke the term blasphemy. But this is the kind of thing that's happening on the internet. More and more uh, extreme statements are being made. Uh, another instance, there was uh, a godly woman who happens to be writing books and speaking at conferences, and some people have a problem with, with women writing theologically oriented books and speaking at theology conferences, and I'm not commenting on what I even think of that question, right? But I'm saying that was the discussion, and somebody compared a particular woman uh, who is known and loved to Jezebel, to Jezebel, uh, uh, someone who's promoting reformed teachings on the whole, biblical teachings, and again, we can debate the role of women in these things, and I'm definitely not taking sides in, in my comments here, but I'm saying whatever, whatever side you take, to compare someone like that to Jezebel is off the charts inappropriate and contrary to whatever, uh, whatever agenda of truth and righteousness that particular person was seeking to promote. And by the way, that was a woman who said that lest you assume, well, it's one of the he-men, woman-hater club or something. No, those people are probably out there too. Um, but that was a woman that said that. So, my friends, we, we need to be thinking here. We need to be very concerned about this issue. And, and this is also an issue that I think should cause us to be encouraged. Because it's an area that has been a problem for so long. For I mean, not I'm not saying 50 years, but long enough, a number of uh, us have been through battles with this type of issue throughout the last decade or so of our lives, and the Lord has done many things to give us sanctified improvement in this area. Uh, really, in a sense, the Lord has a sense of humor in uh, having me preach this sermon, because this is an area that I have struggled with, an area that I continue to battle, and this is an area where I've seen members of this congregation improve drastically and mature and grow teachably heeding feedback and growing in this area. And so this is, a, this is something where we can actually be confident that Jesus will victoriously, prosperously ride forth for meekness because we've seen him doing it in many of our lives. And so it's, it's a, a huge encouragement. We don't want to come away with a negative uh, a negative mindset in such a positive psalm that has borne so many fruits in so many of our lives. But meekness, my friends, is essential to Christ's triumphant cause. It is essential to Christ's triumphant cause. And that's the, the thesis that I want to set before you and present and apply this morning. Meekness is essential to Christ's triumphant cause. Now, what do we mean by meekness? Again, humility, gentleness. This is not a natural personality trait. 
This is not a, a personality trait where if someone happens to be quiet versus talkative, they're more spiritual, more meek, more like Jesus. Jesus did a lot of talking. Jesus did a lot of talking. Uh, this is not a natural personality trait where somebody just happens to be more mild in a way. That, that's not what we're speaking of here. Uh, John the Baptist was meek, right? Elijah was meek. It's a, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit in every child of God to one degree or another. And so we shouldn't, in a sort of shallow way, just associate it with certain personality types or think that certain personality types can't be meek. It may look differently for different people, but there is a common thread of humility, gentleness, mildness, patience, so on and so forth. Webster's defines meekness, at least uh, I went back to a sermon I preached 10 plus years ago. Uh, maybe the definition has changed, but at that point, Webster's was saying that meekness is enduring injury with patience, without resentment. In other words, someone has injured or offended you or you take umbrage with something that somebody has said or done, but there's no resentment, you're patient, you're not brash, harsh, angry or bitter in, in a sinful way in terms of anger, uh, bitterness. Other definitions common in the Christian church say that meekness is strength under control. I think that's Sinclair Ferguson who said that, but probably many have said it. Strength under control. This word in, uh, that's used in the Greek New Testament when it speaks of meekness is a word that refers to training horses for war, training up war horses and taming them. Not taming a horse that's already a war horse so that it's not a war horse, but actually taking an undisciplined horse and taming it and training it for war as it were, to ride forth prosperously in the army of King Jesus. So we can define meekness if we bring all this together as God-given strength to patiently and cheerfully endure offense and injury from others. God-given strength to patiently and cheerfully endure offense or injury from others. And of course, it comes into play when, when, we, when we speak of uh, these controversies in the church. Something might offend me. Somebody's opinion, somebody's blog post on the internet, something somebody said or did, I may take umbrage with that. And this is saying I need to handle that in a patient way that communicates charity, not bitterness. God-given strength to patiently and cheerfully endure offense or injury from others. You think of Jesus on the cross, uh, praying, interceding for those who crucified Him. You think of Stephen, who's being in the process of being martyred, stoned, Acts 7, verse 60, and he's crying out, interceding that the Lord would not hold this against his adversaries. He didn't pull any punches when it comes to truth and righteousness, but he sealed his witness with meekness. And they said, even the enemies said, he had the face of an angel. And it, it amplified his testimony for truth and righteousness rather than detracting from it or somehow weakening it. This God-given strength of meekness is something that arises when we're focused on God, focused on God's sovereignty, God's glory, God's 
goodness. As Colossians 3.15 tells us, we ought to have peace ruling and reigning in our hearts. So if we're at peace knowing that God is in sovereign control, knowing that Christ is on the throne ruling and reigning, that He's working all things for good and advancing His kingdom victoriously, then we don't necessarily need the chip on our shoulder because we're confident. Uh, We're not fearful. We're not anxious. We're not perturbed. But we're confident in the sovereignty of God and we're most concerned for the glory of God. You think of Paul in Philippians when people are preaching the Gospel and they're doing it in envy and strife and seeking to attack Him. But instead, he gives thanks to God that the Gospel is being preached. That's meekness. You go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. He says to the Philippians, let your gentleness, otherwise translated graciousness, forbearance. King James says moderation. Let your moderation, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And he says, therefore, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do that, what's going to happen? You're not going to be all riled up saying crazy things on the internet, but what you're going to be doing is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And verse 8, you'll be focusing instead on whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, and of a good report, even as Paul did in his ministry. And the God of peace will be with you. So when God is big, these circumstances become small, and we're able to put it in perspective and act with this strength and control of meekness. Also, meekness flows out of a concern for others. Again, not vengeance or bitterness, but as Jesus and as Stephen did, uh, caring for the well-being, concern for the well-being even of our persecutors. It also flows from a sober self-assessment. A sober self-assessment. A sober and humble perspective on ourselves. Uh, on ourselves in terms of our sin, in terms of our proper place and calling. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Uh, The person on that Facebook forum who's hurling invectives at people that he or she disagrees with has come to think something of themselves that they're standing in the place of a judge and that God has somehow called them to engage in this type of behavior. But that really needs to be questioned. Uh, None of the people I'm mentioning to my knowledge are are church officers or elders or pastors or anything like that. They're not involved in a court case. They're not involved in a disciplinary case. What exactly is the purpose of hurling these judgments at other people in such uh, uh, unmeek ways? What's the purpose? It seems like people have gotten a a little bit full of themselves, as I struggle with, as you may struggle with. 
but we need to recognize that it's a struggle worth fighting. Uh, also, Galatians 6, verse 3, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each shall bear his own load. Is it not the case that some of our internet warriors, and again, this can happen outside the internet too, but that we have more important things than to look over the shoulders of others and tell them what we think of what they're doing? Has God called you to say that? Is that your place? Is it your calling? If so, by all means, do what you need to do. But if it's not, be careful with that. James 4, 11, and 12 makes the same point. God has given us enough to do. I don't think any of us looks at our current slate of responsibilities and says, boy, I wish God would give me more to do, right? And, and so we have more than enough to do given our own limited time. We don't need to be engaging in what James says is to basically appoint ourselves a judge of our brethren. Now, maybe he has. As elders, sometimes we have to make judgments. It's not pleasant. We do it for God's glory. We hope that he forgives our mistakes. But if, if God's not calling you to do it, you're not a parent with a child, you're not right in one of these situations, listen to what James says. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Right? Who am I to say that some woman who spoke at a conference is a Jezebel? Who are we? Okay? There are times in the life of the church where God calls those whom He's invested with authority to make judgments and to say things and to call out teachers. I've already mentioned Doug Wilson. But uh, we need to be careful as this part of the calling that God has given us. We need to be very careful about that. Meekness flows from this humility, as our translation says, that understands my own place and calling. Also, meekness flows from a preference for gentleness and for encouragement. Isaiah 28, verse 21. I made reference to this last evening. Listen to this verse that tells us about the character of God. Isaiah 28, 21, For the Lord will rise up at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that He may do His work, His awesome work. Better translated in the King James, strange. His strange work. And bring to pass His act, His unusual act. Also in the King James translated, strange. So, strange unusual. God's judgment is when, when He brings this wrath against sin and against sinners uh, and against His people especially, but uh, it's, it's a strange act. It's an unusual act such that people are awed by it. This is different, right? And so when we're cultivating a meek lifestyle, and again, I'm preaching to myself here, but when we're cultivating a meek lifestyle, and when by the grace of God we've cultivated and manifested that meek lifestyle, when we bring a rebuke or a correction or a negative comment or these types of things, uh, 
people are going to say, well, that's strange. That's unusual. She doesn't usually say it like that. She doesn't usually uh, make such a direct statement about things. She doesn't usually, or he doesn't usually uh, criticize, or, so I must take it seriously, right? This is unusual. I'm in awe of this, so I'm going to listen because uh, this is unusual. It's not like the person who cried wolf and, well, this person's just severe and harsh constantly. Every single person or denomination is wicked and evil and cruel. Uh, but no, th- th- listen, this person, it's unusual, and therefore it's taken with greater weight and greater seriousness. It's a sharp arrow when Jesus brings a rebuke because He's so sweet and loving in, in, as a default in His proclamation of the Gospel. And you can see this with the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now they are in rank sin in many ways, and they've embraced these pseudo-apostles at the expense of Paul's reputation. Uh, He could let them have it here, but he doesn't. He pleads with them. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, he says, who in presence am lowly among you. So they're actually accusing him of being lowly and being weak in presence. And rather than responding again with all of these uh, impatient, harsh, brash invectives, he says, I am lowly. And I implore you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who's lowly in heart being absent and bold towards you, uh, but in presence I'm weak. He, he's, he's saying, listen, you want to call me weak? Fine, I'll be weak and I'll be lowly in heart and I'll implore you by the gentleness of Christ. But he says, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He then goes on to say that it's his desire through spiritual weaponry to pull down strongholds and cast down arguments against everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So he's on the warpath for truth and righteousness, but he doesn't bring the sharpness. He holds it back. He doesn't just shoot off an epistle with with a bunch of these kinds of things. He's gracious and meek, and, and he says, if absolutely necessary, I'll speak more sharply, but he's patient enduring injury and offense with these people. And that's his default. He'll bring the sharpness if he needs to, but he would prefer uh, to, to deal with this meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so I need to ask myself this question. You need to ask yourself. Uh, w- when I speak negatively, critically, okay, when, when I make strong, robust condemnations of, of people's doctrine or practice, uh, is that strange for me? Is that strange? Is that, are people going to look at me, and they're being honest, and say, that's unusual for that person? Or, or are they going to say, you know what, um, there, there goes Pastor Keener again. Uh, here we go again. Are they going to say that? Is it unusual or is there a, a robust default of encouragement and positivity wherever possible? Uh, I'm preaching that to myself. Preach it to yourself. Um, 
because this is what Jesus is writing forth for. It's essential to his cause. It's essential to his cause. You may look at the list here of things that Jesus is writing forth to promote, and you may say, well, truth and righteousness, that makes sense because these are the two great categories of God's revelation, according to our catechism, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So humility just seems out of place. But the fact of the matter is that I think we can say that truth and righteousness are inseparable, right? If you reject the truth, that's unrighteous. And if you reject righteousness, you're violating the truth of God's Word. So truth and righteousness are inseparable. They're just two sides of the same coin, if you will. And we can say the same for humility in relation to truth and in relation to righteousness. In other words, humility is on par with these things. And if we really look at the message of Scripture, we'll see that it's not at all out of place. You know, uh, which of these is not like the others? Well, they actually go together quite well. All three of them. I mean, the first sin of the devil was pride. So, in some sense, uh, the entire campaign against truth and righteousness began with a lack of humility. I mean, we could go on and on, but let me just point out some things uh, in relation, first of all, to truth. James 1 verse 21 tells us, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. What's that implanted Word? It's the truth of God's Word. It's the truth. It's the truth of the Gospel that you're to receive, but to receive it in faith, he says, is to receive it with meekness and humility. So humility and truth go hand in hand, not just in receiving it, but in defending it. 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give an account, uh, to give an answer for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Right? So when we receive the truth, we're to do it in meekness. When we defend the truth, we're to do it with meekness and fear. In addition, uh, you can see that at the heart of the truth of the gospel is this meekness, this humility. Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now he says that that gospel truth is the basis then, if you go back to verse 3, of this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only out for his own interest, but also the interest of others. So, humility, and this is hard for me, I'm sure it's hard for some, some of you as well, uh, a temptation common to man, but lowliness means not impugning the motives of other people and thinking that we can judge and we can, we can put them under the microscope according to our own standard. We need to be humble and reserved in these types of judgments against others. But the point is that it flows from the very truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
Also, uh, Psalm 25, a psalm we often sing at communion time. Psalm 25, verse 9. The humble He guides in justice, and the humble He teaches His way. We saw last night that the Lord teaches His truth concerning Himself and His heavenly Father. Uh, He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So this is the truth about God. And Jesus then says, come unto me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. So the one teaching us the truth is teaching us in meekness. And uh, again, according to Psalm 25, verse 9, he teaches us uh, to be humble and to be meek using that same Hebrew word. So this is important, but uh, look with me at James chapter 3. This is a passage that is highly instructive. Uh, We looked at this in our midweek not too long ago. James chapter 3. This is James' uh, treatment of the tongue. And we're not really going to delve too much into those familiar verses dealing with the tongue, the importance of taming the tongue, but, but we're familiar with it, the sinful tendency of our tongue and the need for sanctification to tame it. But verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. What do teachers teach? Truth, right? Again, we're showing that meekness is at the heart of truth. It's of the essence of Christ's cause in terms of truth. And so James begins by speaking of those who might want to become teachers of the truth, and he says that you'll receive a stricter judgment. And then he deals with the sins of the tongue. Then look, verse 13. Think of truth. Who is wise and understanding among you? So he's again, he's getting back to the person who wants to be a teacher of the truth. And he says, okay, we've just dealt with the need to tame the tongue. Okay, let's come back to this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who who understands the truth in such a way as to teach it? And this is important because the the internet warriors out there, why would they say they're doing what they do? Because of the truth, right? And the same for me. When I'm not meek, I might use that as my defense, and you might as well. And James is correcting us here. Who is wise? Who does understand the truth among you? Let him show it, right? Welcome to Missouri, the show me state. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So the truth, the wisdom of God is characterized by meekness. Now listen, but if you have bitter envy, better translated sharp zeal. The word envy there is really the word zealous in Greek and envy is not the best translation. Uh, It's more generally zeal. And the word for bitter can mean bitter, uh, sharp. Uh, But if you have bitter zeal or sharp zeal and self-seeking, better translated strife, King James translates it that way, uh, strife. Sharp zeal and strife in your hearts do not boast and lie against the truth. Now that is convicting. Because uh, for myself, when I've lacked meekness in proclaiming the truth and gotten a bit uh, beyond the bounds, the fact of the matter is that I'm claiming to be speaking the truth, but this is saying that in my sharp zeal and strife, 
I'm actually lying against the truth. And people that hear me speak the truth, in fact, it's almost worse if what I'm saying is true because now people associate the truth with a false conception of godliness and a false conception of Christ and a false conception of God Himself because of my sharp zeal and strife. Uh, I'm sure whoever was monitoring some of these uh, internet conversations about blasphemy and about Jezebel, uh, is, is that really winning people over to those causes? I'm not sure that it is, right? It's actually, even if those things are true that those people are trying to promote, it's actually, in a sense, practically speaking, lying against the truth. And so we often find ourselves in a position where there's a cause that we support, but somebody's out there promoting it in an embarrassing and shameful way that hurts the cause, and now the truth is in jeopardy because, you know, with, with, in a sense, with friends like that for the truth, who needs enemies? Because it actually lies against the truth. And we've got to be careful about that. He says, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy, that's zeal in Greek, zealos, where zeal and strife is the best word, where zeal and strife exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Well, God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of truth and precision. But you see, when sharp zeal and strife enter the picture, everything gets confused, and now we're sitting around talking about Jezebel rather than the biblical roles of men and women. He goes on, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, so there's your truth and your righteousness, but again, let him show that he has that understanding and that purity by what? Being peaceable, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, right? Willing to admit when we're wrong. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So it's not just truth, but it's righteousness. And meekness is at the heart of these things. So you can actually say that to be lacking in meekness is to lie against the truth and to violate biblical righteousness. So if you're first pure but not peaceable, you're actually not pure. You're not pure. If you're not pure and peaceable, you're, not, you're neither of the two, right? This is, this is convicting. This is something that the world is not emphasizing. It's something that I've probably failed to emphasize in my pulpit ministry, and perhaps it's, it's a failure in the broader conservative Christian culture around us, but it's something that the Bible emphasizes front and center. I mean, Jesus in Psalm 45 is said to love righteousness and hate wickedness, okay? Now, think about that. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That's his cause. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness, but part and parcel of his hating of wickedness According to Proverbs 6, verse 16 and following, listen to the wickedness that he hates. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. Children, when your brother or sister is getting punished for something and you smile and you sort of make fun of them, God hates that. The Lord hates that. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. We quote that 
right, in our society and opposing abortion, no question. He does hate the hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, right, those people at the abortion clinic that just scurry in and they don't want to hear the truth to kill their baby. Listen, God hates that. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. If we're sowing discord, we're not sowing the, the seeds of, of righteousness by, by those who make peace, right? That's what James is saying. Righteousness involves promoting peace. Christ hates unrighteousness. He hates that which sows discord among the brethren. We need to take these things in. And meekness is essential to Christ's triumphant cause. It's the meek that inherit the earth. It's the meek that have the saltiness that includes meekness and don't lose their saltiness, but are a preservative in a wicked society. The less meek we are, the less salty we are, and the more we contribute to the decline of our own society. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 11, and 12. If we're going to ride prosperously, we need to ride prosperously for truth, meekness, and righteousness. 1 Timothy 6, 11, and 12. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. So you're out there fighting, right? Fighting, but you're fighting for gentleness. Think about that. Think about that. I'm not sure I can expound that adequately. Uh, We need to think about that. Fighting for patience and gentleness. That's the good fight. Whatever fight I'm fighting or you're fighting that's not that fight is not the good fight. It's not the good fight. We may be fighting, but we're not fighting the good fight if it's not also for uh, patience and gentleness and for righteousness. I'm not throwing that out. We're not getting into the gentle olatry campaign, but also not the gentle ectomy. Patience, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called. That's what the man of God is to do. Uh, That's manliness. Now, consider some additional motives. The example of Christ, meek and lowly of heart, and the patience that He showed toward you and toward me. Psalm 18, verse 35. It says, uh, in the words of David, your gentleness made me great. Why is it that you have such a great theology? Why is it that you have such a great argument against those people on the internet? And you probably do on so many issues. But why is it that you have such a a great perspective on all these things and the Lord's brought you to such a great manifestation of righteousness and truth in your life? Praise God for that. but, But how did He get you there? Was it people hitting you over the head with a Louisville slugger in the name of truth, or was it people carefully sharing things, right? And, and, and admitting their own failings and saying, well, I struggle with this, and, but here's something to consider, and here's what the Word of God says. Pray and think about it, right? That's how we're persuaded of these things, not through the alternative, We also need to think of the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father. Moses, the meekest man on earth, uh, violated that meekness with the children of Israel 
and lost his temper and struck the rock in anger. He lacked meekness and he couldn't enter the promised land. So God doesn't mess around with this sin. He takes it very seriously because it's one of the three main aspects of of our Lord's campaign to disciple the nations. And so Moses had some bitter experiences in his life through chastening of of his loving Heavenly Father. So we need to take that very seriously. Uh, The way we judge others, the Lord will arrange it so that these things come back around to us. And that can be a very bitter feeling indeed. But when God does that uh, for myself, I've often found that it just, it's such a means of grace. Uh, once you realize, okay, what the Lord is doing, and then you realize, well, I've been uncharitable to this person, and God's wakened me up to it, and now uh, I can make that adjustment. Uh, but it's, it's still bitter and, and unpleasant. Uh, and think of the wrath of God against all who ultimately reject meekness, both individuals and societies. Even if we were to become a conservative society, that lacked meekness, God would be at war with us. Zephaniah 2, 1-3, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, that feels like our society, right? An undesirable nation, The Lord's fierce anger coming upon us. Uh, Verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. See how those two things are parallel? Meekness and justice and righteousness and truth, right? Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Because when he dashes this nation to pieces like a potter's vessel, hopefully for redemptive purposes, but when he does it, if we're not pursuing humility and meekness, even no matter how conservative and Bible-thumping we may think ourselves to be, it may be that we won't be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And in fact, I think the text implies that if we join forces with this unmeek, unspiritual, impatient, ungodly, unchristlike manifestation of some of these principles, whether in theology or in ethics or in politics, that we're going to be standing right next to them and be dashed to pieces in some sense and experience something of the misery because we did not seek the Lord as the meek of the earth uh, and seek righteousness and humility and therefore He doesn't hide us in the day of His anger. This is extremely, therefore, very serious. Christ's triumphant cause comes with the sharpness of His sword and His arrows to defeat His enemies. And as I said last evening, excessively blunt remarks, whether it's me, and and of course I've said excessively blunt remarks, unnecessarily blunt remarks, and I repent of those things. But those things rarely make for sharp arrows, my friends, in the hearts of the king's enemies. Well, these are things for us to contemplate and meditate on, things to repent of. God gives grace to the humble, things to be strategizing, how we can seek to apply the golden rule where the way we judge others and assess others, the way we interact with others, the the type of rhetoric that we use, 
whether we're speaking to people the way we would want to be spoken to and judging people the way we would want to be evaluated uh, and, and considering how we might more prioritize our sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning of Him day by day, morning by morning, of Him who is meek and lowly of heart. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are not meek. We confess our sin. We confess that there are probably many unconfessed sins, unknown sins in our lives, and there's no way now for us to go back and change all the things that we've said wrongly. But we know that You see and know all things. And as Your people, we take comfort that You know all of our sins because You can blot them all out. Even as we cry out to You to cleanse us from our hidden faults and to sanctify us moving forward that we may speak the truth in love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.